Well, I hope you brought a Bible. If you did, I hope you're ready to look at it and hear what God has to say to us this morning. I really had great plans for how I was just going to spring into this message. But this morning, during my quiet time, I found myself thinking, you know, the heart of God has to be broken by what we have become. And if there is to be a change, a change has to begin here among God's people. And I know some of you are probably thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Again, a gunman has walked into a house of worship. This time in California. A synagogue. And attacked God's people. And I found myself reflecting on the fact that this week... This week, the state we call home became the state that is the greatest defender of abortion in the United States of America. And folks, if that does not pierce the heart of God's people, something is wrong with our hearts. The one thing that I know that God's people can do that has more impact than anything the world can do is pray. We can protest, they can protest. We can block intersections, they can block intersections. We can walk into the throne room of the almighty creator of the universe and beseech him in Jesus' name to make a change. And they are defenseless against that. So before we go any further, we need to do it. We need to pray. And I want to ask you, if you would, just to join me in crying out to God, asking him to touch hearts, change people here in this room, but across this community, across this state, and across this land, because Jesus Christ is our hope. He is our only hope. So let's lean hard into him. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, as we come before you today, we humble ourselves before you, knowing That we're not even worthy to come into your presence with our hurts, our petitions, our concerns, our burdens. But you made the way for us. When you gave your son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for our sin. Father, the church has grown too silent. In the face of culture. In our silence. Satan has had a heyday. 
Sin has taken a tight grip on people. Hatred has raged in the hearts of people. And murder, whether it be with a gun or any other tool, has become the norm. Father, we're part of a sinful nation and a sinful people. And we plead with you to intervene. To send your Holy Spirit in power to move across this land through the churches. To to change and turn hearts. To convict us of our sin. That we would remain on our faces before you day after day. Awaiting for a moving of your power. Father, I pray that we become a people who are obsessed with making the name of Jesus known. That we would become a people who are obsessed with calling out sin and addressing it in love. Father, use us. I know that when I ask you to use us, it means you're going to have to change us. And Father, I I pray that you would change us into what you want us to be. A people whose lives and ministry brings glory and honor to you each day, wherever we might be. Father, let us never be satisfied to simply sit back and say, well, this is the way it is. You've called us to be salt and light. You've called us to be different. And you've called us to make a difference. Help us to be faithful in the doing of that. Father, I pray today that you would awaken our hearts and break them for those things which break yours. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, I, I, I want us. I want us to talk about the greatest proof of the resurrection. You say, "Well, that's kind of a weird transition." No, it's not, and you'll see why in a few moments. But if you've got a Bible, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 1 because that's where we're going to be looking together in just a few moments. I have to be very cautious, I discovered this week, about what I say, how I say it. If I had sat down a couple of weeks ago to write the introduction to this sermon, I would have started off saying something like this. Last week, we celebrated Easter together. And then the world would say, oh, you're an Easter worshiper. No, I'm not. I am one who worships the Lord who rose from the grave on Easter. I do not worship a day. I worship a man who was and is God, who died and yet is alive. 
I want us to make sure we understand that distinction. Last week, we celebrated the resurrection. After spending a lifetime of watching the church celebrate Resurrection Sunday year after year, I have come to this conclusion. There is only one question, one question that is pressing enough that we must put all of our effort, all of our energy into pursuing a definitive answer to this one question. Did Jesus really die on the cross and rise again? That's the question that that has got mankind over a barrel. That's the question that keeps people from believing. That's the question that holds people away from the church of Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ himself. That's the one question that if we can answer that question honestly, it can change the world. How do you answer that question? Well, (laughs) Oh my goodness. You've heard me before. I've stood here and I've told you. It just it blows my mind. I, I'm a poor historian, but I love history. I love to read it. I love to study it. I love to take it apart. I love to analyze it. I try to make sense and, and get, get into a time frame where things begin to, to tie together and, and you begin to see the fabric and the flow of mankind. And there are a multitude of things that have happened in history that we accept as proven fact, historical fact without any question, that have very little evidence or proof to hold them up. Simply that someone said, oh yeah, that happened, I saw it. But when we come to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the world wants to argue and debate and say it did not happen. But I want you to think with me for a moment. That on the day that Jesus rose from the grave, there were eyewitnesses, multiple eyewitnesses, who went to the tomb, saw the stone rolled away, looked inside, saw that the grave was empty, and knew that Jesus was not there. On that same day, there were multiple witnesses, eyewitnesses, who saw him with their own eyes, spoke to him, and were spoken to by him. As time progressed... We have four different men, very different men, from very different backgrounds who wrote what we call the Gospels. And each one of them gave an account of the meetings that took place and the contacts that were made and the conversations that occurred after the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the tomb. And then we have the Apostle Paul. He says of himself that he was one who was born out of due season. He came along later than the rest of the apostles, what he was trying to say. And he says in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians, that after Jesus rose from the dead, that one time he appeared to over 500 of the brethren at one time. And at the time Paul was writing this, in the mid to to latter part of the, the first century, he made this statement. He said, many of them, those who saw him, are still living. What he was saying was, don't take my word for it, go ask them. They'll tell you about where they were, what they saw, what they heard. They'll tell you about their encounter with Jesus. So we have multiple eyewitnesses. We have multiple written accounts. And yet the world says it didn't happen. And the church says, okay. I'm a little pig-headed. I'm not ready to say, okay. I think God has given more than ample evidence of who Jesus Christ is. And I haven't even gotten to the greatest proof of the resurrection yet. 
So let's get to that. If you've got your Bible, Acts chapter 1. Mike, would you help me with this this morning? A little long. I didn't have a chance to talk to you this morning. I was caught in some other things. Acts chapter 1. Find verse 3. We're going to read down through verse 13 together, but I want you to just kind of soak this in. These are words that you're familiar with. I've preached out of this passage multiple times. Usually we take this verse. We take that verse. Now, I want you to see what's going on here. I want you to see the flow of what is transpiring in and around Jerusalem at this particular time. Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, if you can, will, I'd like to invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Follow along with me. After his, Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. When they arrived, They went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Would you pray with me? Father, I ask you this morning to bless the reading of your word. I I pray that as we spend these moments together, you would speak to us. Teach us your truth. Teach us your way. And Father, I pray above everything else that today you would challenge our hearts and call us to walk in that truth. To live it out every day so that wherever we go, whatever we say, every life that we touch will be impacted with the good news that Jesus Christ is alive. Father, I'm confident in this room there are doubters and skeptics. Speak to their hearts especially today. Convince them of the Savior. Call them into your kingdom. And let us rejoice with them, Father, in the experience of new life. But we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. You may be seated. Again, I want to ask you, what proof do we have 
that Jesus rose from the tomb. Certainly, there are all manner of proofs that are given to us. I've already explained many of those to you, but I, I want to tell you something. I, I think that beyond the fact that the tomb was empty, that the seal was broken, that the guards were gone, beyond the fact that the body was not there, even though the grave, grave cloths remained, even though he appeared over and over again to numerous groups in numerous settings in different places and times, even though he spoke a multitude of words that are recorded for us, even though he showed himself to over 500 people at one time, I still think that the greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is found in the fact that the church still exists today. Now understand when I say that, I'm not talking about buildings built up and down 21st Street. I'm not talking about buildings and structures that have been erected all around the globe. I'm talking about the fact that there are men and women and boys and girls whose lives and hearts have been changed by the power of Christ. We are the church. The greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is changed lives. You heard me correctly, folks. It's not about the building. It's not about the emblems. It's not about the holy days. It's about the changed lives. People who have been transformed by a personal meeting, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. The evidence is right here in Acts chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, just leave it open there because we're going to stay right in there. We're going to dig around a little bit. Let's, let's see what we can find. How were the lives of these men changed? How were their lives changed? Well, let me just tell you first off, their function was changed. The function that these man, men had in their lives was altered. It was changed forever. You say, well, what do you mean it was changed? What I mean is simply this. You, you look and see what it says when Jesus is speaking to them in Acts 1-8. You will be my witnesses. They had a new job. They had a new calling. They had a new purpose. Before they met Jesus, they were like any and every other men on the face of the earth. And when I say that, what I mean is they were pursuing success in their varied vocations. You look around that group of guys. There were some men there who had a, a business plan to corner the fish market in the region of Galilee. Uh, they, they were going to get more boats and more employees and they were going to be the ones that ran the fish market in every small community along the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they could see their name up in signs already. There was another fellow among them who before he met Jesus, he was pursuing a career in high finance. He was working for the state government revenue department. He was a tax man. But that was a great way to get ahead back then because I know this shocks everyone, but the tax men weren't honest. Who would have thought it? But it was a way for them to get ahead and to make money, and he was on his way. He was building his own empire when he came to meet Jesus. There were some others who were trying to figure out their path. They had no idea what they were going to be or, or who they were going to become. There was another one who was a rebel. Some people call him a zealot. Uh, others would take the word zealot and say he was a terrorist, basically. His whole plan for living life was he was going to torment and terrorize the Romans who were in his homeland ruling over his people. But all these men changed after they met Jesus. All of a sudden, they had a different purpose. You know what their purpose was? Obedient discipleship. Wherever Jesus led them, whatever he instructed them, they wanted to do that. When he said, I need a man for this job, they wanted to put their hands up and say, call me, call me, I want to go. 
Their whole point was to learn more about him, more about his kingdom. And this is such a change for them. I mean, if you read the Gospels, these guys were like us. And I know when I say that, people say, no, their name is John the Apostle, Peter the Apostle. Nobody's ever called me the Apostle. They're no different than us. You say, well, what do you mean? They sinned. They doubted. They argued with each other, who, uh, each other over who was going to be greatest in the group. Who's going to be most important? Who's going to get to sit by Jesus when he comes back and sits on his throne? I want to be on the right hand. I'll sit on the left. It's okay. I'll be number two. I mean, it got so bad that a couple of them called their mama in to come in and fight for them with Jesus. They weren't any different than us, folks. That was before they figured out who he was. That was before the resurrection. That was before they had a meeting with the risen Christ. After that happened, they had one purpose and one goal. You know what it was? What he told them, you will be my witnesses. Their purpose in life from that day forward was to fulfill the great commission. Go, make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them everything that I've said to you. That became their purpose, their function in life. Their function was changed because they met Jesus. Their lives were changed. They had a different function. Now, I just want to ask you, stop for a moment, just in the quiet, don't say anything, don't shake your head, don't raise your hand, don't say, oh, I can give a testimony. Now, none of that. I just want you to think for a moment. In this room, when you started out in life, did you have your own game plan? And did Jesus change your function? I said a lot of heads bobbing even though I told you not to. Truth is there, isn't it? Most of us at some point said, here's what I'm going to do with my life. Here's what I'm going to become. Here's who I'm going to be. This is what I'm going to do. And then we met Jesus. And our function was changed. Our lives were changed because of that. But let me tell you something about this. When your function gets changed, so does your future. Meeting Jesus, their future was changed. You see, they had always been worried about what's coming up next. They wanted to know who's going to be greatest. Who's going to get to sit here? Who's going to get to sit there? Who's going to carry the money bag? Who's going to walk next to Jesus? When they sat down for dinner, don't you know that there was a lot of jockeying for position about who was going to get to sit next to the master? I mean, he might do something incredible. He he might take a piece of bread and turn it into a steak. You have no idea what this guy is going to do. I mean, he was always up to something, and it was rocking their world, and they wanted to be next to it. They wanted to be close to it. And so, you know, and, and even at this point, he's getting ready to leave. And they're sitting there, and and he's telling them what they need to do. He's telling them what they need to be about. And they're saying, hey, is this when you're coming? Is this when you're going to give the kingdom back to Israel? Is this when you're going to restore the kingdom? I think this is probably where some of them got the look. 
I can imagine Jesus saying, are you kidding me? Have you guys not paid attention to anything I've said to you? Have you not been listening? And so in verse 6, he tells them, it's not for you to know. It's not for you. Listen, don't worry about that stuff. Sometimes, you know, I was having a conversation with someone the other day, and, and, I, and I told them, I said, you know, listen, as a preacher, this is easy. You want to build a crowd? Start preaching through Revelation. You want to build a crowd? Dig into Ezekiel and take it into Daniel and start getting to the Revelation thing. I mean, hundreds of people will flock to your church house because everybody wants to know about the end. And the reality is, all you're doing is tell them what they could read for themselves if they just opened the book. Because I don't know any more about it than you do. We tend to get caught up in stuff that's really peripheral. And we lose sight of the main thing. And the main thing is this. It's not when the kingdom is going to be established in its final form. It's not when Jesus is going to come back again. The main thing is being sure that we're ready And we've helped as many people get ready as we possibly can. They're looking, they're saying, but Jesus, the things you said had to happen, they've happened. The the sign of Jonah has been fulfilled. Well, that was easy. Three days in the belly of the earth and out. Guys, there's a whole lot more to it than just that. It's always been the situation for believers that so often we find ourselves longing to know the facts whenever the reality is we're not even taking care of what happens in the present. Why worry about the future if we're not doing what we're supposed to right now? We've got to learn. They had to learn. We have to learn to stay focused on the task at hand. Let me just tell you something. Jesus is coming again. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, yeah, that's just so much preacher talk, too. I've, I've heard that before. Okay, these are the same people who want to scoff at the resurrection with all of the historical fact we've got. And, and they say, well, you can't verify that Jesus is coming again. I don't have to. Jesus did. In John chapter 14, he said, look, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you may be also. He already confirmed that. And then you've got the Apostle Paul who's telling the Corinthians about everything he had read, heard, been told, and had shared with him about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You remember? And he tells him what happened on that night, basically following the same outline that Luke gives us in his gospel in the 22nd chapter. And he comes to the end and he makes this comment. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you celebrate the Lord's death until... He comes again. It's kind of like the great debate over the rapture. Well, the rapture's not going to happen. Well, yes, it is. No, it's not. The word rapture is not anywhere in the Bible. You're right. The word is not. The event is. I'm not here to argue about a specific word. I'm going to tell you now, the word is not in the Bible. So if you're looking for that and you're digging through your concordance trying to find that, give it up, you're dead. You're not going to find it. Oh, but if you read what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 
Brothers and sisters, there is no doubt what he's talking about. You see, there's going to be a day where there's going to be a shout and there's going to be a trumpet blast. And the Lord is going to appear in the clouds. Oh, wait a minute. Weren't there a couple of guys in white in Acts chapter 1 who said this Lord Jesus that you've just seen go up is going to come down? Yeah. Paul says the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's going to appear in the clouds. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. And those who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the air. And so shall we always be with the Lord. I want to tell you something. My future was changed a long time ago. And it's not just about Jesus coming again, and it's not just about us being caught up. It's about the fact that here's a reality a lot of people don't want to talk about, but I want to just tell you about it this morning very quickly, okay? Eternity is a reality. Eternity is a reality, and everyone is going to have an experience of eternity. Every person who has ever lived, everyone who will ever live that is born after this moment in time is going to have an experience in reality. That experience is going to be an experience of life with Christ in eternal glory, what we call heaven, or there is going to be an experience of eternal death separated from God and from Christ in the place that we call hell. And I know people say, well, I want to talk about heaven. Tell me about heaven. Nobody ever asked me, but tell them about hell. That never comes up in conversation. But I want you to know there is more about hell in God's word than there is about heaven. I think there's a reason why. God knows our nature and he says, if I can't do anything else, maybe I can scare the hell out of them. I'm not trying to be crude, folks. I'm just telling the truth. I think he wants us to understand how awful it is, how horrifyingly terrible it is. He wants us to look at hell and say, I want no part of that. Jesus Save me. We're God's people. We're the ones who know the truth. Listen, we are commanded to be busy sharing Christ and discipling those who place their faith in Christ so that they can know what his truth is and they can walk in it as we are walking in it, as he has called us to walk in it. I mean, even Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We ought to be saying the same thing to the world around us. We're going to imitate Christ. You imitate us. We're going to do this together. We are called to live holy lives to be distinctly different from the world around us to be separated that's what sanctified means we are called to be righteous the righteousness of God not that what we have in ourselves is adequate but what he places on us when we are in Christ and as we're doing that we ought to be anticipating the day we don't stop working we don't sell our goods and go live on a mountaintop and sit and watch the heavens aimlessly waiting for something to happen it's going to come whenever God says it's going to come and friend I want to tell you something when it comes I want to be found busy working for him I don't know what your personal plans on but I'm going to just tell you right now I intend whenever the trumpet blows he's going to find me serving him I'd be thrilled to death if he would blow the trumpet right now and I didn't have to figure out how to finish this sermon And I know some of y'all are saying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't want to hear him in this either. It's all right. 
We need to understand that we have a responsibility to, to share Christ. Why? Because our future has been changed. And we want the futures of others to be changed as well. Let me tell you one last thing before I stop. Meeting Jesus changed their fellowship. It changed their fellowship. What do you mean by that? Listen, they faced some tremendous obstacles to genuine fellowship. And when I say that, I, I just kind of find myself grinning on the inside because I'm going to tell you something. When you looked around the room, when they got together, you talk about stories of personal failure. They had it. They had it. And it could have. It probably should have. Maybe it did create some distrust among them. They looked around and they saw the empty chair. See, Judas had been with them for three years. He had been like a brother to them. He had walked with them and slept with them. And, and he had watched the miracles and, and, and listened to the teachings just like they had. He was a trusted member of the group. He was even, he was even the financial secretary for the group. And they had stood and watched him come and betray Jesus with a kiss. And then he went, rather than facing them and facing the reality, he went and hanged himself. And they're looking at each other and thinking, is there another Judas in the room? And as they're looking around the room, their eyes settle on Peter. Yeah, big, bold, brash fisherman. I'll go to the death with you. And then he denied him. Three times in one evening, he denied him. I mean, if Peter's not strong enough to stand up to the test of Satan and, and he's going to deny Jesus, what hope do any of us have? And there's Thomas over in the corner. He had so little faith in Jesus that he wouldn't believe until Jesus showed himself to him and allowed him to touch the scars. It's easy to see how they could distrust each other, huh? Any of y'all ever been in a church before? What are you talking about, preacher? We're in church right now. Yeah. Look around you. Sinners. Sinners, everyone. And people walk through the door and sometimes I see people look at them and say, oh, I don't think they belong here. They're not dressed right. They don't look like us. Look at that guy. He's got tats all the way up his arm. What's that hanging out of his lip? Feels like he fell into a tackle box. You see, sometimes we look around and we act like we don't trust each other. Still got your Bible open? I want you to look something real quick with me into this passage. Acts chapter 1. Go down to verse 12. Pick it up with me here. Just, just summarizing these last couple of verses, okay? Verse 12. They traveled together back to the city. They stuck together. Here's a marvelous lesson for the church today in 2019. They stuck together. When they went, they went together. When it was time to go serve, they went and served together. When it was time to go and wait, they went and waited together. When it was time to go and obey Jesus, they went and obeyed together. 
They returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from there. By the way, this wasn't 30 minutes that we got to sit next to each other and tolerate each other. They were together all day long. And look at verse 13. When they got there, when they made it back, look at what it says. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They stayed together. And then verse 14, this just amazes me. Verses 13 and 14 are astounding to me. It tells us who was present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, the son of James. And look at what it says. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. All those men that should have, could have distrusted each other. What struck me, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Don't you know she could have looked around that room and in her heart said, y'all were his best friends. And when you had the chance to do something, you ran away and hid. You could have defended my baby. And instead, you let him go and you let them kill him and put him to death and you watched from a distance. She didn't. And his brothers. Don't you know the disciples were looking at him, those, those brothers, and saying, yeah, yeah, these are the same guys that came and told everybody he was crazy when they tried to get him away from us. He's insane. Don't listen to him. Nut thinks he's the son of God. But they didn't let that happen. They stuck together. They stayed together. They basically lived together. And look at what it says. They joined together constantly in prayer. They were the church, having church, and being the church. Folks, I told you all of this to tell you one thing. The greatest proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ are changed lives. He changed my life. And I know across this room I could get testimonies. I've, I've, I've sat and listened to many of you tell me about how Jesus came into your life, how he transformed you, how he made you a new creation. But I want to tell you something. That's true of anybody who meets Jesus Christ. His word tells us that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Have you met him? Has he changed your life? If he has, understand this. You are a walking billboard advertising the truth of the resurrected living Christ. If you've not met him and if he has not changed you, I want you to know something this morning. God loves you. And he has a plan for your life. But that plan begins when you come to him in faith and repentance through his son, Jesus Christ, turning from your sin, following him, 
and saying, I am now a disciple. I'm going to learn Jesus. I'm going to love Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to serve Jesus. If you've not had that experience, I want you to know something today. This is God's gift offered to you. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If he's calling, if there's a longing, if there's a desire for something more, something new, something radically transforming in your life, I want you to know that's not because I've sat here and talked you into it. That's because the Spirit of God right now is drawing you toward it. Would you hear his voice? And would you respond to him? It will change your life. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing a song of, of invitation, of an opportunity for us to commit ourselves, to, to come to him in repentance and faith and trust. Friend, I, I want to ask you, do you know above everything else right now, do you know that your heart belongs to Jesus Christ? Do you know that you are a child of God because of what Jesus has done in your life? If so, you ought to rejoice in that. And you ought to be ready to go and share that. But if you don't know that, I want you to know today you can before you leave. I'm not the fix-it guy. And this church is not the fix-it place. But we know the Jesus who can fix it. And we'd love to help you meet him today. And so as we stand in a moment, we begin to sing. If you need that relationship, you want that relationship, you long for that relationship, I'm going to invite you. Come and take me by hand and say, Pastor, I want that relationship. I won't embarrass you or put you on the spot. But I'd love to explain to you from the Word of God how today you can become a new creation in Jesus. What do you need to do? As he leads, obey. Father, I thank you today for your word. I thank you for the fact that you changed lives. You did it then, you're still doing it now. And Father, I pray right now for all of us in this room, for those who are your children, that they would examine their hearts and allow your spirit to look deep within them and realize that if there's sin, it needs to be pushed aside and forsaken. That we need to surrender ourselves to following after you, pursuing you with all of our heart and all of our passion every day. Father, for those in this room who find themselves right now saying, I don't have that relationship. I pray that your Holy Spirit would grab a hold of them and begin to pull them and draw them. That they would fall on their faces before you and acknowledge, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I need to meet this Jesus who came forth from the tomb. Father, have your way in each of our lives. Be glorified in this place, in every life, in every home, in every heart. Do what you will. We'll give you the glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.